want you to think about some of the reasons people have, specifically Christians, for not going to church. Some of those reasons that popped into your head are probably good ones, like you're sick and you don't want to get other people sick. But some of the other reasons aren't quite that great, right? Like, I stayed up late and I really don't want to get up before 11 a.m. Now, whether the reasons you come up with are good or bad, it tells us something. Anytime we come up with a reason, it's because we know the church is important, which is what makes our text this evening so interesting. This is the one time that Jesus tells us we should stay home from church, if this is true. Not saying it's the only reason. This is the only one that Jesus explicitly says to stay home because of this issue. And it has to do with anger. And so tonight, we're going to look at the only reason that you should ever skip church, according to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to see three things. We're going to look at the role of anger, the response of anger, and the release of anger. So, the role of anger to our text. Now, I, I can't stress enough that anytime we come to Scripture, we have to read it in its context. And so this passage takes place in a larger context where Jesus is fulfilling the law. And what that means is Jesus is taking the Old Testament law and he's putting it where it was always intended to be. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you hear how he takes the Old Testament law, do not murder, which is a command about the value of human life, and he elevates it. He, he takes it from simply, don't take human life, to you should value each other so much that it affects the way you speak to one another. And the problem he's addressing here is anger with one another, sort of. We really need to clarify anger's role in this passage because anger isn't actually the problem. It's just the manifestation of the problem. We often think of anger as only being bad or negative, but, but anger is actually a neutral thing. And what determines its goodness or badness is how we use it, how we express it. Anger can be expressed in healthy ways in the form of being assertive. It, it compels us to solve problems and show compassion. For example, if you were walking by a playground and you saw some kids making fun of and picking on someone with special needs, I hope that you would get angry. And that's a good thing to do. And that anger would drive you to show compassion to that individual and, and be assertive, seek justice for them by intervening. Anger would be a good thing in that situation because of how it's expressed. But anger can also be, take a negative form as aggression, which just involves trying to, to hurt or control others, getting revenge, or just straight up hating the other person. And this is normally our, our default expression of anger. But what, what I want you to catch is that anger becomes problematic when it isn't used appropriately. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, Caleb, this doesn't apply to me. I don't get angry. Yes, exactly. If that's you, I respectfully say to you, yes, you do. <laughs> uh, you might act like you don't, and you might try to stuff it down, but we all get angry. And let's be honest with one another. 
The people we get most angry at are, are not our enemies. It's the people that we're closest to, our, our, our brothers and sisters, both in a literal sense and a spiritual sense. And so the, the force of this passage is not to say that anger is bad. Rather, it's saying that Jesus is against how we typically use our anger to tear down and dehumanize each other. And so from our text, I want us to wrestle with how King Jesus would have us respond when we are wronged, when our blood begins to boil. And we really need to look at this from two angles, right? The, the offended and the offender, because we often can be on either side of that. So when you have been wronged by someone, what does Jesus expect us to do? And I think it's worth starting with the question, why am I angry? See, anger is a secondary emotion, uh, which means that it's a lot like Mufasa. You've all seen Lion King, yes? Okay, so do you remember the scene wherever uh, Simba and Nala sneak off to the elephant graveyard and the hyenas are chasing them, they corner Simba, and he's like, row, 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 and it's, it's, it's pathetic, right? He's threatened, and then all of a sudden, boom, Daddy Mufasa shows up, and he protects Simba from any danger. That is how anger works. Anytime we are, something in our life is threatened, anger shows up to protect it, Okay. And it's been my experience that unhealthy anger is normally motivated by an unfulfilled or threatened desire. Let me explain what I mean. Have you ever lost something? Have you ever gotten angry looking for the thing that you lost? Okay. Next time, stop and ask yourself why you're angry in that situation. I guarantee you it's not because you can't find the thing. Anytime that happens to me, I get angry because I want to be seen as competent, like I have my life together. And I just can't convince anyone of that if I can't find my car keys. <laughs> and, and so anger shows up to, to draw attention away from my incompetency and protect my self-image. Here's another one. Have you ever been to a sporting event where the game is not going well and, and the coach is just losing it? He's just screaming and yelling at his players? Why is he angry? Well, it's because he doesn't want to, to uh, he wants to avoid the embarrassing situation of losing. And so he's trying to use his anger to manipulate his players to play harder. He's trying to protect himself from failure. Do you see the connection? Anger is a sign of a much deeper issue. It indicates that someone feels betrayed, unvalued, belittled, embarrassed. We could go on and on and on. And the reason it's so important to identify why you're angry is because it reveals what you're trying to accomplish with your anger. See, we all have goals whenever we express our anger. You might go and confront the individual, individual in an attempt to prove that you were in the right the whole time. Or, or maybe you say nothing and you just try to find a way to get even down the road. Or maybe you, you don't go talk to the offender, you go talk to your friends and tell them all about it to try to gain their, their sympathy. But as citizens of heaven, we have to ask what Jesus' goal for our anger toward each other might be. How does he expect it to play out in healthy assertiveness? I'm turning briefly, just a couple of pages, to Matthew chapter 18. Just looking at verse 15. So this takes place in a larger uh, passage where Jesus lays out a method 
uh, for confronting someone who's wronged you, but rather than look at the method, I just want to note the goal. Okay, so verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is to gain or to win back the brother, the person who offended you. And if that's the goal, it means that our anger should, should, should make us assertive. It should push us to go talk to that individual in an effort to restore the relationship. Okay, but what if you're on the other side of the coin? What if you're the one who has done the offending? Because let's be honest, we've all been on that side, whether it was intentional or not. And so for that, we, we turn back to our text. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, or to put a modern spin on it, uh, if you are walking into church on Sunday or youth group on Wednesday, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I used to think that this was all about not coming to church angry, but I want you to notice who is angry in these verses. It's not the guy going to church. He remembers that someone is angry with him, that he has offended someone. And normally, whenever we recall something like this, we think, that's not my problem. They really should move on. But Jesus says, no, my people should go and seek out the other to be reconciled to them. And that's a really important word, reconcile or reconciliation. And it means to restore after a presumed wrong, which might sound a little complicated because it is. But it's something that you are familiar with and actually you want to see. Case in point, the three Thor movies. Anyone seen the, the Thor movie? Yeah, okay. They are a meta-narrative on reconciliation. I mean, just think about it. In the first movie, Loki betrays Thor, and then throughout the trilogy, Thor seeks to reconcile, to patch things up with Loki, but Loki refuses, and we're all secretly like, why can't they just be friends again? And then we're rejoicing by the end because the relationship is restored. We love the thought of reconciliation. And when we wrong each other, there is a break in the relationship. Whether you are the offender or the offended, our goal is to reconcile. And it's not even for, for necessarily for our benefit. It, it's for the other person. Both Matthew 18 and Matthew 5 say that the offended goes to gain or to benefit the offender, and the offender goes to or to gain uh, the offended, brother or sister. So what does that mean for us in the youth group? Well, when we are wronged by each other or we're the one doing the wronging, we need to seek reconciliation. But Caleb, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, we all like the idea of reconciliation, but how are we supposed to move past our hurt and our sense of rightness? How do we release the anger so that we can actually reconcile? And if you've been coming for any amount of time, I hope you know that the answer is Jesus. That Jesus transforms our ability to relate to one another. Uh, I, I am turning, you don't have to turn there, but I'm turning over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to read a couple of verses from there that help explain how this reconciliation can possibly take place. So I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in the divine drama, each one of us were offenders. We had rebelled against God and we had attempted to usurp him. We were for all intents and purposes his enemies. And we might expect God to just wait for us to try and make amends or, or perhaps just bring down judgment upon us. That would be his right. And yet, what does he do? God, the offended party, seeks to reconcile, which our text tells us came at great personal cost. But it was a price he was willing to pay because restoration, reconciliation, is worth the cost. And we who have experienced such reconciliation, we are to model that in our relationships. Because we have been forgiven much, we are able to extend that forgiveness to others and reconcile. We don't have to defend our value because Jesus has already firmly established it. And so the line in the sand for us as a group is to embody Christ's reconciliation in our sphere of influence. And I'm not going to lie, this is very difficult to do. Some would say impossible, but because we have experienced Christ's ministry of reconciliation, we can do it. When we acknowledge our motives, when we seek to win or to gain the other, and are willing to pay the price, we are on our way toward being the people of God that we are called to be.